This podcast discusses violence, drug use, and other adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to another episode of Breaking Pod. I'm joined today, as always, by my co-host, co-founder of this podcast and the entire Vernacular Podcast Network. I'm lucky to be podcasting with him today and always. I'm joined by Zach. Zach, how are you? Do you just think, how can I make this introduction more ridiculous than the last I time I introduced you? I think maybe by the finale <laughs> of this the series, I'll have like a three-minute introduction, which will help towards our possible four-hour final podcast. Yeah, well, no, we agreed four hours is too long. Three and a too half long. hours. Three is and a half, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, today well, we are talking about season four, episode seven, Problem Dog. Interesting title, which will get explained some somewhere through the episode. It will. Exactly. And you know, as I was as I was watching this episode, I was like, Problem Dog, why is it called Problem Dog? I can't remember why it's called this. And then, of course, we got to the dialogue where this appears and I was like, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, Problem yeah. Dog. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, I think that coming off of the, you know, the week before the episode where we talked about Cornered and we talked about Walt's big, big speech, you know, it's going to be hard to have a character moment that tops that. And I don't think that that Jesse's moment in this episode tops it, but it's it certainly gives him a run for his money. It's definitely a very powerful scene from Jesse when he returns to therapy. We're going to talk about that in this episode of the podcast. But first, as we always do, should we kick off with a two minute summary? We should. But can I ask a question real quick? Yeah. So Aaron Paul's performance in that dialogue that we'll talk about is just, I mean, it's so, so good. It is just as good pound for pound as anything that Brian Cranston has done in the entire series. And there, there's, I guess there's like two ways I could go with that. One, you know, Aaron Paul's done some acting since then. He's certainly still in Hollywood and still acting, but the acting has not been as prominent and he hasn't gotten the acclaim that he did for this. And I'm wondering if this is, if you think this is a common thing, right? Where someone has an absolute standout performance and then it's such a good performance early in their career that they kind of become typecast for it. And then people can't see anybody but that character as opposed to the actor in subsequent scenes, right? Because when I, I think it was um, uh, Need for Speed, right? I, I saw mm-hmm. Aaron Paul in Need for Speed. And when I was watching that, I was like, I mean, Aaron Paul's a good actor, but I'm just seeing Jesse and I can't get Jesse out of my mind. And it's really hard, I think, for Aaron Paul to move away from his character as Jesse um, in Breaking Bad. And so it's almost like, you know, an actor like Aaron Paul starting out his career more. I mean, he did other things before this, but more or less like this was what what made his name. Right. Someone who early in his or her career makes their name with a stand up performance like that in a way is kind of a victim of their own success, I think. And I'm curious to know if you agree, because he's so good that it hurts his chances to be successful later on. Yeah, I absolutely think that's true. I think that you can see that in, in, I think you typically see it more in comedies. Like you see people who are typecast. I think the cast of friends had a really tough time coming off their, you know, 10 year run on that show. And I think with the exception of Jennifer Aniston, most did not have the success that they had wanted to leaving that show. And you would think, oh, well, it's a hugely popular show. Why couldn't they get the work that they wanted? And it turns out that people just see them as the characters that they were made famous for. So I think that certainly, you know, that's the case here. And I think the other problem too, is if you think about it, Brian Cranston has had a, very, a lot of success following his his role as Walter White, but he he had also 
already been on Malcolm in the Middle, which was a totally different thing. So I think people saw this and they saw it, oh, they thought, oh, well, this is something different. And then he's since gone on to do things where he has, for example, a full head of hair or a beard, and he just looks different. I think Aaron Paul doesn't really ever look that much different than Jesse Pinkman. And so, you know, I, I hate to say that, like, transforming yourself is a necessary part of acting, but like physically transforming yourself, you don't have to go to the Christian Bale level of like losing a million pounds and then gaining it all back for another role. But, you know, just the ability to look different, I think helps immensely when you're trying to play other roles. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. And it's it's a good point about how Brian Cranston has had success, but he had success previously. And then maybe the Jennifer Aniston thing. I mean, maybe Jennifer Aniston or Brian Cranston here, maybe it's the exceptions that kind of prove the rule, right? That it's right. really hard to be successful with an early smashing success in the case of, you know, Aaron Paul or others like that. Um, I will say that Aaron Paul, he did have his his biggest role. I'm looking at his IMDb page right now. You know, he did do a couple of movies. You mentioned Need for Speed, where I think he was the lead in that. But his biggest role, his most uh, consistent role, has been as a voice actor on a Netflix show called BoJack Horseman. So interestingly enough, it's not one where we see his face. We hear his voice talents, which we know through this this series is good as are they're good as well. And he was on the most recent season of Westworld, which I haven't watched. But, um, you know, I think that the BoJack Horseman thing, you know, that that animated role thing. And if you think about it, another famous actor, uh, Mark Hamill, who played Luke Skywalker, his most famous roles since he played Luke Skywalker in the in the 70s and 80s has been as a voice actor. And I think part of that is due to his skill in that in that sense, but also because he was so recognizable as Luke and never could, you know, eclipse that with any other roles. There's also the fact that Mark Hamill is a completely talentless actor. So <laughs> that's fair. He, he has gotten a lot of acclaim for his voice work, uh, but I've, you know, I've, I haven't checked out much of it personally, but yeah, he's not a great actor. Um, real quick, not germane to, to the Breaking Bad discussion, but have you seen Vice with Christian Bale? Yeah, I have. That is the most insane character transformation I've ever seen oh my gosh, an actor crazy. do. It's, he looks he looks so much like Dick Cheney. Like he does. And it's so crazy. Like as I'm watching it, you know, it, it's the transformation is so extreme that you look at his face and you're like, I've seen you somewhere before, <laughs> but I can't totally place it. And then, you know, and then you realize like, oh, it's Christian Bale. That's insane. So and what's really interesting is that he then immediately went and did Ford versus Ferrari, where he had to lose all of that weight. I mean, he's like really skinny in Ford versus Ferrari. Yeah. And well, just know, compare just, just compare him in like, um, you know, the, the gulag with uh, Raz al Ghul. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, versus yeah. Vice. Um, and oh, yeah. it's just like insane. It's crazy. Like, yeah, I, that can't, can't be believe healthy. it's the same person. Yeah, I no, can't it's either. definitely not. His doctor told him to stop doing that. <laughs> Good. Well, uh, I've derailed this enough, Josh. Sorry about that. Let's continue with our discussion here of Breaking Bad. Yes. So let's do the two minute summary of Problem Dog. We're going to get back on track. And here is the two minute summary. Rather than return Walt Jr.'s car, Walt takes it on a joyride, crashes it, and blows it up. Skyler, taken aback by the amount of money Walt makes, is unsure how she'll launder all of it through the car wash successfully. Walt asks Jesse to kill Gus and concocts a ricin poison in the lab, which Jesse hides in one of his cigarettes. At a meeting, the cartel offers Gus an ultimatum, which he rejects. Jesse has an opportunity to kill Gus, but he does not. He returns, his 12, he returns to his 12-step group, where he admits to using the group to sell meth, Hank visits Gus's restaurant with Walt Jr. and obtains Gus's fingerprints from a cup. Later, he informs his former partner and boss at the DEA of his investigation, having found a match for Gus's fingerprint at Gail's apartment. 
end of two minute summary. Zach, what grade do you give this? Ah, uh, this is like a C. I mean, it's it's fine. It's there are some funny things. I especially like the first sentence that ends with and blows it up. <laughs> yeah. I was also going to ask, what do you think determines what gets hyperlinked and what does not? For example, yeah, I have no why idea. Does, why does 12 step group and ricin get hyperlinked, but not, uh, not DEA or cartel or yeah. Cartel. That'd be a good one too. I think, I think I understand the ricin one a little bit because it's not a common, it's probably not like a common poison that you would think of the 12 step group though. That seems more common to most people. I would think. Yeah, I would think so as well. But I would give this I would give the summary uh, a C plus. The reason that I do like it is because it hits on all the major points. But what I like about it is that it does take things out of sequence from what we see in the episode, but it makes sense in the in the summary. So, for example, the Hank visiting Gus's restaurant with Walt Jr. does not happen, you know, right before he informs his former partner and boss, uh, you know, Gomi and whoever the boss is. I can't remember his name. That doesn't happen right before, but it makes sense when you're reading the summary. So I do like that about this. Yeah, that makes sense. That's fair. All right, so C, C plus. It's it's not bad. Definitely not yeah. the worst we've seen. Exactly. All right, I don't know if we have any broader thoughts and themes. Did you have anything before we jump into best scene, best moment, best writing? So I've got some thoughts on Jesse, but I think we'll get to that when we get to some of these scenes. So I think we can proceed. Yeah, so let's, uh, we're going to save my best scene because it is your best writing moment. It's the big Jesse monologue that we see. So we'll save that for just a little minute. Zach, give me your best scene nomination because this is a this is a pretty nice visual moment. Yeah, exactly. So the best scene is the Challenger explosion sequence. And no, I'm not referring to the space shuttle Challenger exploding, although I do wonder if that was, you know, intentional by design. This is like, yeah. you know, the, uh, yeah, the, this is, I mean, literally a challenger, a Dodge challenger, but a challenger exploding, um, which uh, harkens back to the, what was it? 1986, I think 1986 challenger explosion. Um, so it's the challenger explosion sequence, but maybe not for the reasons you think. I mean, in an action film, you want big explosions that are impressive and you want the person walking away from it, et cetera. And in fact, previously on breaking bad, we've seen Walt rig someone's car to explode when he, uh, took the, like the metal part of the wet squeegee and cross it. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't know exactly what he did. Right. But he blew up some guy's BMW and that was much more action film like, and we kind of like made fun of it, I think uh, in the aftermath, because Walt's walking away and in the background, the car just explodes. Yeah. And you think he might do that again here. Exactly. That's where I'm going with this. So that's what I love about it is that, you know, he, he uh, rolls up the paper, he lights the paper on fire, sticks it in the gas, gas cap, et cetera. And is strolling away and you're just expecting this is going to blow up any minute it's going to blow up and it doesn't blow up and he turns around and it doesn't blow up and he sits down and it still hasn't blown up and he takes out his phone and he makes a call and he asks for a taxi to come pick him up and it still hasn't blown up and then basically when you've kind of given up expecting it it finally blows up and so i just like the way it, it goes counter to the normal narrative of cars exploding and it just takes its sweet time the whole time yeah, no, it's a great scene. And I think that one of the reasons that I like it too, as your nomination for best scene is because it's sort of thematic of Walt's state of mind here, which is like, it's sort of like that idea of wanting to watch the world burn. Like he just wants to sit and watch this thing disintegrate. And I just love when he's on the phone with the taxi dispatch, when they say, you know, how will we find you? And he says, you'll, you'll see me, like you'll see <laughs> yeah. the flames and stuff. Like you'll know that that's me. 
And yeah, that's a I good just, point. There's another part of me too. It, it, it you know, he, it's very childlike what he does. Not the exploding yeah. necessarily, although I guess you know some children like to they're, they're <laughs> little pyromaniacs. But <laughs> what I'm referring to is how like if he can't have it, nobody can have it, right? And he right. breaks it. Like um, your kids, fortunately, Josh aren't quite old enough to be fighting with each other yet. But mine do fight with each other, and sometimes it happens that if you know they're fighting over a toy, for example, one will get frustrated and just say, say basically like. Well, if, if I have to give it up, then I'm going to make sure that nobody can enjoy it, right? So right. if it's, I don't know, like, let's say they're fighting over a stick or something, right? They, just, they might break the stick before they pass it on so that nobody yeah. can enjoy the stick. And there's something about that here, too. Skyler has insisted that Walt take the car back. Um, so first, his first instinct is, let me go, like, make some donuts in the parking lot, and then maybe I'll return it. I assume he had, he did originally plan to return it. But yeah. then it, it got to a point where, like, it was going to be too much hassle. You have to call a tow truck, et cetera, et cetera. And so he just blew it up, which I don't, you know, I don't quite understand the logic there either, but fundamentally it's very childlike. Like, let me just explode this so nobody can enjoy it and I'll just yeah. watch it burn watch the world burn. Like you were saying. Yeah. And, and the other thing too, is like, it's another, it's a little thematic too, because he's doing these donuts in the parking lot and then he basically drives up onto, you know, like one of those dividers and you know, he basically locks the car there. He can't get it off and it's going to be ruined anyway. It's certainly not returnable. And I think it's one of those moments where you think it's just a, it's just another thematic device to show that Walt is in over his head. Like he, he can't even do like, he's not someone who's a race car driver who knows how to do donuts. Like at first it seems like he might be okay doing it. And then very quickly and suddenly he crashes. And I think that's emblematic of his, you know, his work in the the drug trade, like he doesn't, you know, at first you think he's going to be okay, but he keeps running into these moments where he's just completely in over his head. Yeah, completely right. Good commentary. Yeah, we well, certainly got a lot out of that one little scene. I know, right? All right, well, let's move on to best moment and then we'll circle back to best writing and then ultimately my best scene, which is similar to your, your uh, best writing. But my best moment here, we heard about it in the summary, and there's no audio to play, but I just thought it was really interesting because I was trying to, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, sometimes you have to take a step back and remember that upon a first time view, you're not sure exactly what's going to happen. And so when Jesse is making the coffee right before this drug cartel meetup with Gus and this representative from the cartel, he has the opportunity to put the ricin into the coffee that Gus will ultimately drink. Now, on a repeat viewing, you know that he doesn't do this because you know that Gus is in the rest of the season. But in the initial viewing, you're not really sure. And it's a very tense moment. Like, it's one of those moments where he has his back turned to everybody else. He has this, maybe this opportunity to slip the, the drug, the poison into the coffee. And then you don't even see the resolution. So you see Gus drinking this coffee. And even at the end of the scene, you're not sure... Did he do it or did he not? And I think that's a really interesting, powerful moment because this show continually shows us tense moments and you're not exactly sure what the outcome is until later the episode, later the season. You're not you're not exactly sure. Yeah, I like that. And it didn't make the cut for one of our selections here to talk about. But one thing we should mention is this scene where Walt approaches Jesse in Jesse's house as, by the way, He's cleaning and repainting after all yeah. of the days of raucous partying. His walls have been graffitied, and now he's Finally. actually, yeah, exactly. He's cleaning up. His house looks clean. He's got a, he's got these like industrial work lights in there as he's painting, and it's it's at nighttime, so this is presumably after hours. I mean, he's working hard to get his place cleaned up, all this stuff. And then Walt goes in and basically tries to manipulate him, 
into saying he'll kill Gus and Waltz is trying his hardest and hardest again. Like, like we talked about last week, not knowing what to say in the right situations. And then Jesse basically says like, cut the crap. I'll do it. And Walt's like, what are you talking about? You'll do what? (laughs) Jesse's like, I'll kill him. The first chance I get, I'll kill him. Um, Why do you think he agrees? So I was going to ask you that actually, I don't have, but I ask you first. Yeah, that's true. So now (laughs) I have to answer. (laughs) So, um, there's, so I, I think I don't know, but as I'm thinking about this, as I have thought about it, I think that Jesse is torn between two fathers, right? Is he, is he going to be loyal to stepfather one or stepfather two? And he certainly has more of a history with stepfather one, Walt. Um, and I think he feels some obligation to Walt for the partnership that Walt has given him so far, et cetera. And I think perhaps just out of that loyalty, um, he agrees to do it with Walt. I mean, I think he knows he's in a really bad situation, no matter how you slice the dice. And I think, um, but, but I think that he, he is loyal. And in fact, that's, you know, that's validated by what Mike says to him at the end, right? When Jesse says, basically, what does he see in me? And Mike says, if I had to guess loyalty. And I think there's something to that. I, I mean, Mike is one person who never lies in this, in this show, right? Maybe Hank as well, right? But, but everyone lies except for maybe, maybe Mike and Hank. And, uh, and I think there's something to that in that Mike is true. I mean, Jesse is a loyal person. He's loyal to skinny Pete. He's loyal to Badger. He was definitely loyal to combo and was wrecked by his death. He's been loyal to Walt. And now I think he is loyal to Gus. So I think he's, he agreed to Walt because he felt some loyalty to Walt, but I think eventually he couldn't bring himself to do it because he felt conflicting loyalty to Gus. So the, you know, the question of what to do when loyalties collide is a, is a tough one for Jesse and one that he ponders regularly, I think. But I think that's why he said yes, because he feels some sort of loyalty to Walt. Yeah. I I wonder too, if there's a little bit of like, uh, Jesse is a little bit scared. Like he's, I think he's both loyal to Walt and Gus, but he's also scared of both of them in different ways. Like he knows that Walt can manipulate him. He knows that Walt mostly can outsmart him in pretty much every way. And I think he's scared of Gus for obvious reasons because, you know, Gus slit someone's throat in front of him. And so why wouldn't you be afraid? So I think there, you know, I think your point is probably at least half of it, but I think the other part of it might be that he's scared. And so he, he kind of just wants Walt out of his house and he's like, all right, I'll do it. Just like, leave me alone. And then you you hear later, like Walt tries to discreetly ask him about it in the lab, which is a funny moment where he basically is like, hey, Jesse, come check out this uh, scum on the bottom of this barrel. And, and he's like, why didn't you do it? It's been a week. And I think Jesse will continue to brush him off like, oh, I didn't have I didn't see him. I didn't I couldn't do it yet. And like you can just imagine the cycle continuing and continuing and continuing. So I think that both of those probably add up to why he says yes. Yeah, I like your idea about it. Uh, being driven by fear, at least partially as well. Yeah. All right, Zach, what is your best moment in this this episode? Yeah, so this is the very end of the episode where Hank is back on the the trail, hot on the trail of Gustavo Fring, and he's laying out the case to Gomi and um, the other guy whose name I also forget, but his his boss. Mustache. Mustache guy, exactly. And uh, And they're really skeptical, and then he drops the bomb, and it ends there. Now, we can't capture this in the audio, but there's a great facial expression that Hank gives to his boss at the very, very end, right before we cut to, we cut to credits. That's really good. If you uh, if you watch this recently, you can go see it on Netflix. I encourage you to just go see that because I think uh, Dean Norris does a really good job just with that facial expression. It says so much. I mean, what do we know about Gustavo Fring? Huh? This whole friend of law enforcement thing? Hmm. 
Could be a case of keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. I mean, he's got the money to finance this operation. Maybe he's got the connections too. Maybe, just maybe, he's our guy. Hank, no offense, but I think you're really reaching. If your guy had his meeting at KFC, you wouldn't immediately assume that he's sitting down with Colonel Sanders. You know, I, <clears throat> I couldn't agree more, guys. Gustavo <laughs> Frank, Blue Math, you know. Whole thing is off the map nuts. I had to be wearing a tinfoil hat, you know. <laughs> Except, can't seem to wrap my mind around this one little thing. And that is, what are Gustavo Fring's fingerprints doing in Gail Bedecker's apartment? I just love that so much. I mean, yeah, Hank just, he, he draws it out so long. He's like, I couldn't agree more, guys. And <laughs> he's packing up the documents as he does. And then he's like, except... Pulls one more document out. Yep. Just couldn't wrap my mind about around one little thing and then drops the bomb. Uh, that, I just love it. And then, I mean, it's a great cliffhanger, of course, for the next episode, right? Because yeah. now now the link is exposed. The DEA at least has some inkling that Gus Fring might be involved in some way. The Capacity, wheels are certainly TBD. turning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Here's what I like about this scene. There's two, there's two things I like about it. One is that I think that Mustache and Gomi have a pretty realistic reaction to Hank. Like, He's been through a trauma and they say, you know, we appreciate this, Hank, but like, I think you, you may be, you may be reaching here. I think that it, I love when, when they portray it realistically like that, that they're not immediately just agreeing with everything he says. They're not, you know, saying, uh, you're exactly right. Let's move into this. Like they're, they're skeptical. Like Gus, for all intents and purposes, has been very friendly to the DEA. I mean, he has donated money, he's donated time. And, and so I think that their reaction initially is is really realistic. The other thing I like about the scene is that, you know, we talked about in, I think it was season two when Skylar sort of uncovers Walt's, you know, misdeeds and it sort of seemed to come out of nowhere. Like how did she have all this time to like figure out all these missing links? I think with the difference here that Hank has figured out all these things is that we have seen him for episode after episode incapacitated in his bed, like with really nothing else to do. And so it makes more sense. Like it's realistic to think that he would have had time to sort of investigate this. He has nothing but time. You know, if he's not doing this, he's working on his mineral collection, but otherwise he's pretty open. And so it makes sense that he actually has time to make this investigation. So I appreciate that from that front as well. All right, Zach, should we move on to best writing? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so we'll do my best writing scene uh, first, and then we'll talk about your best writing, which is ultimately my best scene as well to wrap things up. My best writing comes at the beginning of the episode, and it's a it's a small moment, but I think it's um, it illustrates something about Walt as a character. So he's meeting with Saul at the very beginning of the episode after the uh, donut slash explosion fiasco, and this is the conversation we hear. He was headed for destruction of property, but since it's your own property, I sweated him down to misdemeanor trash burning. <laughs> now, the only thing is, it's it's not going to be free. Uh, it's a five grand fine, 600 for towing and disposal, another three grand to steam clean the blacktop. So, bottom line, your little joyride's going to set you back about uh, 52,000 bucks. So, was it worth it? I don't need to hear the blow by blow. Just tell me it's done. 
So one thing I love about this and best writing, I just love the writing they do for Saul. First of all, misdemeanor trash burning is a hilarious crime. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's great. I also just love that Saul asked Walt, was it worth it? And he doesn't answer, which, which indicates to me as a viewer that it was what exactly what he wanted. And he says, I don't care how you did it. Just tell me that it's done. Right. Like it's, and, and the visual here too, which I assume was written in the script or, or maybe it wasn't, maybe it was a directorial decision. Walt is laying on the couch. It's almost like he's in a therapy session, but it, you know, to me, it's, it's sort of, it sort of reminded me of someone who is like a, like a mob boss who's just sort of like yeah, dictating what he wants to everybody else. And he's sort of barely paying attention because right after this, Saul responds with, Oh, did I, did I wake you up? Did it, are you awake now? Like, are you listening? Yep. And so it's one of those moments again, just very, you know, it illustrates Walt's hubris and sort of his, his thought process that he is completely in charge. I will say the the way I read the reclining is more like um, a patient in a shrink's office, you know, reclining yeah. on the on the sort of whatever you call those like chase lounge things, um, right. eyes closed, talking to your therapist. Um, and but I think both of them say something, right? On the one hand, like Walt's self conception is as the mob boss, right? Don't give me the blow by blow, just tell me it's done. Right. Um, the reality is more like Walt as this like pathetic, disordered figure who needs to go to his lawyer. Um, yeah, for I assistance. love that. That makes so much sense. Yeah, it's sort of like what he thinks versus what we see. Exactly. Yeah. Also, I've been to therapy before. You know, on my own personal therapy. I've never had a Same. little lounge. <laughs> I've here. always had to sit in a chair. Yeah, I've had two different therapists and have never. Yeah, I've always uh, or like a just a long sofa. Yeah. Yeah. Ne- yeah. I've always just. Yeah, they've never said like lean back and just relax. <laughs> That'd be fun. Yeah. Though. Yeah, that's a very uh, that's a very stereotypical film and TV yeah. uh, therapy thing. I wonder, right, if it's like, should... I wonder if that's like retro therapy, you know, I wonder if yeah, back that's in true. like the 40s and 50s, that's how psychiatrists Everybody just operated. laid down. Yeah. yeah. All right. Should we move on to best writing for, for me or, or for you? I'm sorry. And my best scene. Yeah. I'm just going to play it right here and then we'll talk about yeah. it. I mean, you back your truck over your own kid and you like accept? What a load of crap. Hey, Jesse, I know you're in pain. No, you, you know what? Why I'm here in the first place is to sell you meth. You're nothing to me but customers. I made you my bitch. You okay with that? Huh? You accept? There's so much there to unpack and it's so powerful and just so exceptionally delivered by Aaron Paul. But I, I love, this is just a, it's a, it's a window into Jesse's soul. So we were just talking about how Walt goes to Saul for therapy and this is Jesse's therapy, his 12 step group. And this is a window into what he's actually thinking and actually feeling. And I think he's struggling with self-hatred. I mean, this self-help guy who runs a 12 step group. I mean, I, I would be critical of his methods as well, just like Jesse is because you know, amendment of life, changing your life is not just about accepting who you are, right? It's not about just preaching self-love, right? Recognize, but, but it's about recognizing, you know, your own inherent dignity and capacity for good. And then, you know, firm resolution to change. 
But that is a, it's, a, it's a little bit different, or at least it's a different way of sort of describing what's going on here. And Jesse is calling BS on this whole like self-acceptance gospel that this man has been has been preaching. And I, I really like it because it's a it's a cry for not even a cry for help. I think it's like almost a cry of um of desperation or maybe even of resignation, right? Jesse's just like, I'm done, I'm done trying to fight this battle. Um, I'm never going to be at peace with who I am. And it's it's a sham that you guys can pretend to be. I mean, the the battle goes on in in a way. And I think that's a really powerful thing. I mean, the the back in the truck truck up thing, and that's the story that we heard in season I think it was three, early season three from this 12-step yeah, leader. Right. Um, how he backed the truck up over his own daughter um, in a rush, I think, to get out to the liquor store uh, because he he needed the drink. And Jesse's like, I don't buy it at all that you can accept that, right? I mean, we make horrible decisions that shape our lives forever. And it's not enough to just say, I accept that and move on. Uh, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. And it's it's powerfully conveyed. Yeah, I think this moment for for Jesse is it's also cathartic. You know, he's finally unleashing what he really feels about this therapy session and and this, you know, therapist or this this 12-step program. And, you know, so I like it for that. I I also really like the 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 dialogue that precedes this is him talking sort of explaining what he did with Gail in And that's the where the problem of, dog thing comes right, in. Right, right. He's he's explaining it in terms of like I had to put down a dog. And the dog didn't do anything wrong and sort of the reaction of of the people in the group, you know, there's one woman in particular who's just absolutely upset with him saying, how could you do that? How could you do that? And I think that I do appreciate the the therapist sort of stepping in and being like, well, you know, you can't just yell at the other people in therapy. You know, that's just not appropriate. Um, You know, I think it. I, I wonder your take on sort of the idea of, um, you know, forgive and forget. So, you know, like there's a part of, you know, when you do something bad or, or morally wrong, you know, there's a part that you need to be forgiven for it, but then there's a part that can you truly ever forget it? You know, it's, it's, it's always a part of your life. And I think that's what seems to be what Jesse's going for here. And, and I think we're going to see this throughout the rest of the series. And we see it in El Camino as well, him trying to sort of make amends for his past and and sort of uh you know justify how he can continue living and and you know so on and so forth yeah i think that's part of it although it's not to me it's not entirely a forgive and forget it's about you know do you i guess it's about what do you accept right do you accept responsibility as a moral agent who's capable of making moral choices that have real consequences or do you accept that things happen to you and then you try to play best the hand that you're dealt, right? So so maybe I didn't, I probably didn't explain it very well before. I was kind of struggling to to sort of translate what I see Jesse is saying, but I think that's his, his main thrust, right? The woman's complaining, like, why did you kill this dog? Um, the 12-step leader says, hey, you know, let's back off. We, we're not here to judge. And then Jesse says, like, why not? Maybe she's right. We can't just accept everything. We have to actually, at some point, be accountable for our decisions. Just like you have to be accountable for your decision to back up, you know, over your daughter. And and that, of course, like really strikes at this guy's heart, which understandably is the case. But I think the point is, right, do we, what, what are we accepting? Are we, are we just accepting that we're like pawns in the hands of fate and we try to make the most of the hammer dealt? Or 
Do we accept responsibility for the choices we make? Um, and I think Jesse is firmly in the camp of the, the, the latter. We accept responsibility or we should accept responsibility. And he sees his leader as being in the camp of the former. Whether or not that's entirely accurate is kind of beside the point, right? I think Jesse's point is like, we need to take responsibility because the consequences of our actions are real. And I've suffered through them directly. And for me, it's more cathartic to recognize the moral agency I have than to just recognize that like I've just done bad things because I've been in a really bad situation. And I need to, I need to sort of from here on out, try to recognize that and improve. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I don't have anything else to add for that. Do you have anything before we move on to nits to pick? No, let's go on to nits. All right, Zach, did you have any nits to pick in this episode? I have one fairly major one. It goes back to this challenger explosion scene. So if you, if you look up uh, for, or that bird's eye view after the car explodes, that shows the car burning and the donuts in the parking lot. We have basically three series of pretty tightly controlled concentric circles. This is clearly a professional driver, not <laughs> Brian Cranston, who yeah. has who has done this, right? And then we have the car that has just like hopped over one of those um, like parking barriers, yeah. whatever you, whatever you call those little cur- I guess like the cement curbs or whatever. Yeah, and then is like in a ditch, and so somehow we're supposed to believe that Walt was skilled enough to do these three very tightly controlled donuts and then just drove into a ditch after that. Yeah. Like I would believe it if we, if we saw a, a uh, bird's eye view that had just like a series of like squiggly lines kind of all around the parking lot. Clearly this is just an amateur gunning it, slamming on the brakes and, you know, pulling up on the e-brake or whatever and doing a hard turn, et cetera. But that's not, that's not what we see. And so it is not believable to me that a man who could do those donuts would also just drive into the ditch by accident. Yeah, that, that's totally fair. I have a nit to pick on this as well. Why is that car park empty? Like, what what day is it? You know, like, it seems like it's one of those, you know, you, you meet there, you carpool to work or something like that. Yeah, that's true. It, maybe it's the weekend. Maybe it's super early in the morning, but it's definitely daytime. And I just, I was like, why is it completely empty? There's not a single other car there. I, it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, good point. Maybe it's like, um, maybe it's like an abandoned factory parking lot or something. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. My my other nit to pick for this episode is I'm I'm not a smoker. I've never been a smoker. But when Jesse empties his cigarette to put the little rice in the thing, packet, pill, whatever it is, into the cigarette to hide it, the tobacco just falls out super easily. I mean, I feel like that's like bad manufacturing, right? Like you would hope that the tobacco would stay in the wrapping i don't know i maybe i'm just not uh knowledgeable enough about the tobacco industry so the last time i smoked a cigarette was in college and so i'm not a cigarette expert at all i do smoke an occasional pipe and the tobacco is packed in there but not incredibly tightly so when you turn it upside down if you just tap it a few times tap the pipe a few times the tobacco will fall out but you pack those yourself right correct yes yeah but the cigarette you would i mean he he's opening what appears to be like a purchased pack of cigarettes not something he rolled himself at least as far as we can tell yeah yeah you're right so i don't know it just seems weird that like he he literally turns it upside down and all the tobacco (laughs) falls out it's like maybe you should get a refund yeah yeah seriously on this one it's not it's not great yeah um i don't have any other nits to pick so i think all that leaves for this episode is our mvp tally zach i think i know where you're going with this who is your mvp you are correct i'm gonna go with jesse that uh the problem dog monologue sealed it for me super impressive uh and i mean his character is just so such a sad character, really. Every time he's on screen now, I just get a little twinge of sadness for him because what he's going yeah. through is pretty devastating. But 
I'm gonna give it to Jesse for this episode for the reasons aforementioned. Yeah, I'm gonna go with with Jesse as well. And I think too, just to add on to what you said, a lot of it has to do with the fact that not only is it powerful in this episode, but it's just going to continue propelling his character forward because we're gonna see him continue to struggle with this idea of can I accept what I've done? You know, how do I accept? What does that mean for acceptance, you know, as we progress through the rest of this season and the series as a whole? And despite you know, Walt Jr. having a pretty fun scene at Los Pueblos Hermanos with Uncle Hank. He does not get the MVP nod from me. Sadly, um, one of these days he'll win your heart, Josh. I don't think that's going to happen, <laughs> but, but who knows? We don't, we don't know. I don't want to say never say never. That's right. All right. Anything else on Problem Dog before that's, we... That's it for me. Yeah. All right, Zach. So that will do it for season four, episode seven. We will be back next week with season four, episode eight for a brand new episode of Breaking Pod. As always, if you have feedback you want to share with us, we'd love to share it on the podcast. You can reach us at breakingpod at vernacularpodcast.com. Send us an email, send us a voice message. We'd love to play that on the podcast as well. Anything else, Zach? That's it. All right. For Breaking Pod, I'm Josh. And I'm Zach. Have a great week.